Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 131. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Dennis the Menace, originally a comic trick panel introduced in 1951, expanded into a comic book series, an American television series starring Jay North, an animated television series, and subsequent television series, books, and feature films. There's even a chapter on the British version of Dennis the Menace and Dennis' longtime association with Derek Green and his playground. Pocket Full of Dennis the Minutes by Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions explores the entire history of Dennis the Minutes and is available now on Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Hey Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark! Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? 
who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the Prefab Four, Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the Solo Monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. Available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. I'm currently working on Mad Turtles and an article on Charlton Comics and more funny stuff for Andrew Goldfarb's Freaky Magazine. No news yet on my other books. On today's show, we have a special presentation. In honor of my TTV scrapbook coming out in October or November of this year from Bear Manor Media and Fun Ideas Productions, I will be reading excerpts from the book. I wrote this book in conjunction with TTV co-founder Buck Bigger's daughter, Victoria. For today's reading, I'll be reading the foreword by Phil Hall and the interview I did with Harvey Siegel back in 2014. I could have used the original interview, but it's on a cassette and the sound quality isn't very good. Besides, it gives me a chance to promote this book. So here we go with the TTV Scrapbook by Mark Arnold and Victoria Biggers. Forward by Phil Hall When I was offered the opportunity to write the foreword for this wonderful book, I approached the assignment with dual sense of wonder and trepidation. As a child growing up in New York City in the 1970s, many of the TTV characters were small screen staples via syndicated reruns on WNEW-TV, a local station that was part of the now-defunct Metro Media Broadcasting Operation. I was a cartoon addict because my childhood dream was to become an animator. And while it didn't pan out, my artistic talent was utterly non-existent. I particularly enjoyed the droll designs and memorable voice performances from the studio's output. The joy in writing this forward was the recollection of a very happy childhood spent in front of the television laughing along at Tennessee Tuxedo, Underdog, and other wonderful warped creations. But with the passage of time, I became detached from the simple joys of childhood and wound up pilloried by the responsibilities and supposedly sophisticated tastes of adulthood. Also, as television programming evolved over the years, those great cartoons from my early years seemed to vanish from view. While I could still recall many TTV episodes with great clarity, including their infectious theme songs and brilliant catchphrases, they became increasingly distant items from a daily life that I could no longer claim. My occasional forays into rediscovering the pleasures of my childhood have resulted in very mixed results. Some of the Bugs Bunny and Bullwinkle cartoons that included references that baffled the 5- or 10-year-old version of me became remarkably vibrant when reconsidered in my guise as a college-educated adult. On the other hand, the jollity I experienced in decades past with the Hanna-Barbera television output failed to travel well into my grown-up years. Characters and episodes that were too much fun back in the day were now highly resistible to my current taste and humor levels. Mercifully, I discovered via home entertainment formats and online videos that the TTV works were neither better nor worse than memory served up. They were just as perfectly entertaining to the grown-up version of me as they were to the childhood version of me. 
Watching Tennessee Tuxedo today as he flummoxes Stanley Livingston or cheering as he politically correct go-go gophers disrupt the never-correct U.S. cavalry is just as intoxicating now as it was too many decades ago. The wonderful aspect of this new book, as well as Mark Arnold's earlier Bear Manor Media book, created and produced by Total Television Productions, was the chance to enjoy the full scope of the TTV output. My childhood television viewing experience was absent of several TV creations, including King Leonardo, Tudor Turtle, The Hunter, and The Beagles. And it was through that book I was able to track down and enjoy the full scope of this studio's imagination. The earlier book also brought back vaguely recalled memories of TTV ephemera, such as The Singalong Family and Gene Hatchery. Neither of those gained any traction in my wider pop culture, but in some strange way, they lodged in my memory cells and could be called up when needed. While individual TTV characters such as Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo may have become household names, the TTV studio as a whole has not secured the popular admiration bestowed on the likes of Disney, Warner Brothers, UPA, or Hanna-Barbera, let alone the more contemporary animation funhouses. With this book, I hope that TTV can achieve the level of adulation that its characters and their creators deserve. And while the too self-confident Tennessee Tuxedo always insisted that he would not fail, TTV never failed to entertain and inspired. The grown-up me and the childhood me are united in that opinion. Phil Hall is co-editor of Cinema Crazed and author of 10 books, including The History of Independent Cinema and the recently released Jesus Christ Movie Star. His entertainment writing has been published in the New York Times, New York Daily News, and Wired. And he is the host of the award-winning SoundCloud podcast, The Online Movie Show, and co-host of the award-winning radio talk show, Nutmeg Chatter. Introduction by Mark Arnold. The cartoons created by Total Television Productions, yes, large V, small p, or TTV for short, from 1960 to 1970 were virtually a mystery for years. People knew the names of the voiceover artists, but the other creators' names remained elusive except a quick and blurry scrawl of animators' names at the end of the original airings of King Leonardo and his short subjects from 1960 to 1963. The only other clue was at the end of the Beagles, 1966 to 1968, where the names Watts Biggers, Chet Stover, Joe Harris, and Tred Covington appeared listed as creators and producers and songwriters. But since hardly anybody watched that show and copies of it are still scarce today, these names meant virtually nothing. For the most part, syndicated reruns that aired for years of Tennessee Tuxedo and his tales, 1963 to 1966, and The Underdog Show, 1964 to 1967, offered no new revelations of who the creators of these shows were, so most assumed that they were made by Jay Ward of Rocky and Bullwinkle fame. The first inkling of knowing anything about the TTV creators came with a lengthy article about Joe Harris in Animato, number 38, summer 1997. Next, Buck Biggers and Chet Stover wrote How Underdog Was Born in 2004, and I interviewed both of them for Hogan's Alley magazine in 2007. So two more pieces of the puzzle became clear. When asked to write my first book for Bear Manor Media, I was asked if I could expand my interviews with Biggers and Stover into a book. I said I could, not knowing if I could get in contact with anyone further. Fortunately, I did, and interviewed Joe Harris, and the final missing puzzle piece, Tread Covington. 
A man with a name so strange, I had to ask Buck and Chet if he really existed, assuming that he was a fictional name like Ponsonby Britt was for J. Ward Productions. He did, and I interviewed him as well. All four proved to be incredibly helpful, and my book, created and produced by Total Television Productions, came out in 2009. While proud of my work, information, images, and interviews that have occurred since that time have caused me to want to update that book for at least five years. This is that update. What this book includes is a revised original air date listing and some new interviews and many new images, plus first-hand recollections and images by Buck Bigger's daughter, Victoria, who reached out to me when she discovered a hidden scrapbook of her father's after he passed away. What this book doesn't include is a retread of the history as told in those earlier books, because those books are still relevant and accurate. Instead, the focus is on the images, to show the art of TTV. Did I say images? Yes, many. Enjoy! Mark Arnold Chapter 1. Updated History of TTV by Mark Arnold Since 2009, TTV has been purchased by two companies. When we last met, TTV was owned by Classic Media. On July 23, 2012, DreamWorks Animation acquired Classic Media from Boomerang Media for $155 million. The company became a unit of DreamWorks Animation and was renamed DreamWorks Classics LLC. On April 28, 2016, NBC Universal announced it would be acquiring DreamWorks Animation for $3.8 billion. The acquisition was completed on August 22. 2016. Chapter 2, an interview with Harvey Siegel, March 15, 2014, by Mark Arnold. Introduction. I hate to say that the biggest error in the original created and produced by Total Television Productions book was to say that Harvey Siegel was dead. Unfortunately, through my research, I had tracked down the wrong Harvey Siegel. I discovered the correct Harvey Siegel when I read The Art of J. Ward Productions by Daryl Van Sitters, 2013, an excellent and highly recommended book for fans of TTV. Fortunately, I can make amends here with an interview I conducted since that original book came out. M.A. This is Mark Arnold for the revised Total Television book, and today is March 15, 2014. Tell me a bit about yourself and how you got interested in animation. H.S. I work for a very, very important man in the animation field named Seamus Culhane. He's an ex-Disney animator. I got out of high school and went to work for Jimmy, Seamus we called him, almost immediately. In the meantime, during that period, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve and spent four years with the Reserve being trained, getting ready for the Korean War, which had come about early. So I started with Seamus Culhane. I mentioned the Marine Corps because it's one of my loves in life. Part of my two loves is I worked for the FBI up until about a year ago, so the two loves of my life are the art and cartooning and judicial work with the government, actually, and having fun all the way. M.A. The two are vastly different. H.S. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned to you that I believe that I meet every Thursday with the department here with the assistant chief of police and the old SWAT team members. That's about six of us, and we start to meet every Thursday at a Chinese restaurant. We discuss the latest things going on in armor and what's going on in the world and such. Wednesday afternoons, I teach at St. Thomas Episcopal working with children. That's one of my loves, also is working with kids. That's one of my joys in life right now, really. That's the present. But how I got started was Jimmy Culhane. I always like cartooning, and it's something that you're either born with or not born with. I always like cartoons, 
I like humor and working with children. They've been my goals in life also. I'm just having a ball doing it, even to this day. Right now I'm 85, and I feel like I'm mentally 12. How does that sound? M.A. Sounds good to me. Did you have any formal training, or did you just learn on the job with Seamus? H.S. I had a scholarship to the Cooper Union School of Engineering and Architecture. Did you hear of that, Cooper Union? M.A. Um, no. I have since looked it up on Wikipedia. H.S. Okay, it's a very fine university in New York City, and it has scholarships. Abraham Lincoln gave speeches there, and the elevator is a round elevator. It's full of engineering and architecture and fine art. I got a scholarship there. That's my basic fine art background, you might say. As far as a cartoon background, I basically work with Culhane, who was a great, great teacher. He was a really hard taskmaster and worked with very, very tough people. He knew what he wanted, and if you work with Seamus, you learned everything about animation from inking and painting and sipping coffee and the whole works, right off the top. M.A. What projects did you work on with him? H.S. Tricks Rabbit, Lucky Charms, American Airlines, Gillette, Peter Paul Mounds, and Almond Joy. This is all black and white television at the time. M.A. When you were working for Seamus, was that directly for General Mills? H.S. No, Mills came later. Seamus had his own shop. You lose accounts, you get accounts in our field. Eventually he had to close up. I worked for Seamus for about seven years. When he had to close his shop, I was approached by Peter Peach, who was involved with the Rocky and Bullwinkle show from the very beginning. I believe it was Cloyd and Gindney, the Moon Men. That was our first on film, the Moon Men. And Peter. I knew Peter, and he called me into his office one day to check on some new animation film that he was interested in. I was so interested. I guess you know Leonard Key and Ted Key. M.A. Yes. H.S. I bought Leonard's shares in that company. I spent $10,000 in that company. I sure wish I had kept it. I had no idea it was going to be a hit the way it was a hit. Leonard sold me his share and he stepped out and I worked with Peter Peach. George Carlson was their accountant at that time. He was also the VP of the company which was different from Jay Ward. Ward has his own company. M.A. Wasn't it called Producers Associates of Television? H.S. Yeah, it was P.A.T. M.A. So did you work for him directly? H.S. Yes, I worked with Peter Peach. Great name for a cartoon company, right? I'm trying to remember some of the names. Cynthia Carlin, Roger Carlin were part of the P.A.T. group at the very beginning. George Carlson was the accountant at the very beginning. Peter went out and met with people, and he was a good salesperson. He got involved somehow. I don't know how, but he got involved with Jay Ward. I was in service in Japan for about two years. My service was in psychological warfare. We called it Psy War. I went all around Japan and loved it. Peter called and said, Do you want to go back to Japan? I said, Definitely. The original intention was to produce the shows in Japan. I believe the name of the studio was called Tojo Studios that they had involved themselves with. I've heard rumors that there was not a studio, but there was a studio. The problem at that time was logistics. Nowadays, you have your cell phones, and there are ways to get around. At the time, we just had local telephone lines, and the logistics were terrible to make phone call to get things moving. It was a really big problem. Between Peter and Jay, they decided on Mexico. I had no idea they were going to Mexico. I knew nothing about Mexico. That was the beginning of the ward group in PAT in Mexico. You know how that started, right? 
The book that Daryl Van Sitters wrote, it's really fantastic. He really pinned everything down perfectly. I helped him along the way, and my recollections of the beginnings of Mexico were really, really, really tough. We had nobody to work with, basically. We had about four or five Americans that came down, which is in Daryl's book. There was Ernie Terrazas. You don't need their names, do you? It's all in Daryl's book. M.A. Yeah, I know a couple of them, at least, like Gerard Baldwin. H.S. Yeah, Gerard was working with Ward. He had a pretty big group. He had about four or five animators working with us. I would say that the show would not have succeeded. They were really going on a dream in Mexico. If not for one of our animators, I'm trying to think of the names, they're all listed in the book. Anyway, one of them was from Argentina, and he spoke perfect Spanish. M.A. Was it Sal Fayese? H.S. Sal died. He had a bad heart. Many years ago, Sal Fayese and George Singer, well, at least four or five of them came down. We needed help desperately. Peter did what he could on his end to not get in trouble for working in Mexico. For every five Mexicans, you could hire one American. In order to get so many Americans to work, you had to get permission from the Mexican government to do that. They had to give you a special form. You could work there as a visitante, which meant you could work there for six months, and then come back and work again for six months, and then come back and work there again in six months as a visitante. I was one of the contacts originally. I worked with the industry a lot. I was an FM2, and that document gave me all the rights of a Mexican citizen, except that I could not vote or own a liquor store or land along the border, which they called the frontier. The FM2 gave me all those rights, which is what we should do for the Mexican citizens here. We should give them every right that we have, but don't give them the privilege of voting. That's the problem. That's the way it worked in Mexico. We could not vote. We had every other right as a Mexican citizen. I just loved it down there. It was really fun, and they're wonderful people. M.A. So you basically stayed because of that for a number of years then. H.S. Everything was 18 months originally. I signed up for that, and since I owned part of the company, I felt it would be very, very good for me and my family, and with my wife at the time, Eileen, and my two children named Scott and Drew. I moved them all down to Mexico and became my home for 25 years. I did love it. It was really a wonderful experience. My kids all speak Spanish fluently. That's their mother tongue, really. They went to an American school there. There are many, many foreign schools in Mexico, like the British Academy, and so on. My kids went to the American school, which taught them basically in English and Spanish. If you live in Mexico like we did, FM2, you went to the university free of charge. My oldest son, Drew, he was three years old then. Eventually, he graduated high school and then went to university in Guadalajara, a medical school. He became a doctor, and I didn't have to pay for anything. It was paid for by the government. Once you graduated, you were obligated to the government for a year or two. They assigned you a job in a very small town, or it could be in Guadalajara, but you had to give the government back in the form of payment of working for the government, where they assign you a special place in the port to give back, in other words. I didn't have to pay for Drew's medical school. He got out of the school and joined the U.S. Navy and became a flight surgeon. And he went to some school in North Carolina, which the Navy paid for. He became a lieutenant commander and a commander and a flight surgeon. He loved flying, and he did what he wanted to do, flying and doctoring. My other son, Scott, liked animation, liked live action, and that is what he's doing right now. 
He works freelance, both in the States and Mexico, doing live-action commercials. My daughter, Lori, she's down in Mexico. She's a dual citizen, Mexican-American right now. She has two passports legally. Lori lives near Carmen, it's called. It's close to Cancun in that area. It's a small town, but a very popular tourist place called Playa del Carmen. Lori still lives down there. We have a Chinese granddaughter now that speaks perfect Spanish. They'll be up here next month. M.A. You go back and forth still between Texas and Mexico? H.S. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful experience, really. I love the Mexican people. Never once did I have a problem down there. When you hear about J. Ward's problems, there are many books written about Mexico. Earthquakes destroyed this building, and these other things happened here. It was all BS. I told Darrow that we had earthquakes, but never once was a building destroyed. One of the books showed a building separated in half, you might say, and we jumped from one building to the next. It's stupid. That's ridiculous. The government would have shut us down so fast, you wouldn't know what hit you. So that's what happened. M.A. When I did my book, everyone generally said that everything ran pretty smoothly. It was a little rough at the very beginning. Of course, during TTV, this was quite a bit later, so all the really bad kinks were already worked out. They were talking about Tennessee Tuxedo and Underdog. H.S. We finally had what was really capable, really. The problem we had was that we couldn't get animation cells into Mexico back then, and so we had to smuggle them in, really, truly. We couldn't get paint. They'd close the border on something like ink. It's called Black Magic Ink. We couldn't get that, so we had our ink made in Mexico, which was horrible. It was made with glycerin, so of course, during the rainy season, which we had, it would never dry. The cells would stick to each other in these big blobs. It was really terrible. The paint, of course, we had to use latex wall paint. We couldn't get cartoon colors, cell levels and cartoon colors. You're familiar with all that. M.A. To make them all the same shade and all that? H.S. Yeah. The company that was near L.A., I guess it was in Culver City, it was the Cartoon Color Company. Let's say you wanted red. In fact, I remember the numbers. It was 108 red. We couldn't get it in Mexico because they made house paint in Mexico, and that was pretty similar. We had to get the closest thing we could to 108 red. With the cell levels, it would be cell 1 and the buildings on cell 4. Other characters would be on cells 3 and 2. The cartoon color company had those leveled out in cell levels, so if you put one cell down, it changes the color of the cell underneath it. Let's say you use white on the bottom cell. M.A. Right. And then you put four levels on top of that. It would become gray, of course. We had to get the cartoon color company. They had all the cartoon levels for us, from gray to white. So we had to hire somebody, and his job all day long was to get the colors as close as we could to the different colors of red, for instance. We had different jars of the paint to make them move from cell to cell. When you work with a cartoon color company, you can order 108 level 1, 108 level 2, and so on. So it would never jump in color contrast. If you ever watch any of our old shows, you'll see. Even in old Bullwinkle, you'll see it jump from light brown to dark brown because they're not leveled. They're not cell leveled. M.A. Did you ever run out of colors completely? Let's say you're doing red. Did, that, did you run out of that? H.S. Well, no. Since we were using house paint, you never run out of color because there were many houses, so then we had tons of paint. The problem we had was getting the right colors. Then there were people out there like RCA, which is a British company. 
They were very, very helpful, and they were trying to help us and working with us to get the cell levels for us. They were very, very cooperative on that. We did our best, but we did have the problem with ink. Black ink, you could get the Higgins ink, but it wasn't for cells. And then during the rainy season, it would just blob right on top of that. The pressure of each cell on top of something would make it stick like glue. You'd get your cell back, and you lost your image. These are the things we had to fight, and it made it really difficult. It was a lot of work. One of the major problems, really. Tape was no problem. Another major problem was that I had the iodide, and we had Oxford cameras. We used special lamps to get Kelvin ratings. We had a certain Kelvin rating, and we had to use regular photo floods, which were not made for animation. We had to use that, and we had to get a Kelvinometer and get the right Kelvin rating. We had all these technical problems, and only if you worked in the field, you would appreciate the amount of problems that come up like getting the right Kelvin rating. We were using Kodak film. Any wrong Kelvin rating, the film wouldn't give you the right saturation of color. M.A. Did you have all those problems all along, or by the end it was all figured out? H.S. All along. M.A. Oh, wow. H.S. Yes, we had problems all along because of dealing with the Mexican government. You'd think they would try and help you because you were working in Mexico, but we had 125 people working for us. You had certain laws, and you had to work within the law of immigration. That was always one problem. Customs was another problem. There was a lot of smuggling. The animation cells you couldn't get, so the films we used for my shows were very, very thin. They weren't the normal thickness. We had a lot of problems with the cell jumps. We had a lot of problems with cell jumps. They would go all over the place sometimes. I spoke to Daryl about this. How familiar are you about animation? M.A. I've never worked in the field, and I'm only familiar with what I've read. H.S. Daryl knew what we were talking about. The original optical cameras were set up for Acme pegs, the pegs that hold the bottom of the cell. Since we had to use the very, very thin cells, we had to use Oxbury pegs, which is a much sturdier peg. They call them pegs, actually. We had to use the Oxbury pegs, which is very rare. Most people use Acme. We had to use them because we couldn't get the cells that were normal size. I think normal cells are 005, I believe, and I believe we were using 003, which is what they would fit. That was really, really a major problem. M.A. It's amazing you got the cartoons done. When I interviewed Roman Arambula, he said that you never missed a deadline as far as he knew. H.S. Yeah, Roman's a very good friend of mine. In fact, he gave me a drawing of Mickey Mouse and the rest of those characters. He loves me. He gave me a hat here somewhere if I can find it. My room here is a mess. I'll try to send you a copy of it. M.A. Let me ask you about a few people you worked with. Some I know have passed on. Some I don't know what happened to them. I think the one you were thinking of from Argentina was Bob Schley? H.S. Okay, Bob, yeah. Without Bob Schley, we wouldn't have gotten anything off the ground, really. Bob was a tremendous Disney talent and a fantastic animation artist. He was part of my family, you might say. The kids loved him, and he was a very good friend. In one of the animation books, it said he committed suicide in Italy. It should have never been brought up because I don't know if you want to know what happened or not. M.A. Sure. 
H.S. It was nothing illegal or anything like that. Bob retired in Italy, and he gave all the money he earned, and when it came time to retire, he had no money. He had spent it all. Bob was a very fine gentleman, really easygoing, and he just couldn't face it. I wish many times he would have called us. We could have helped him out in a lot of ways, financially, and he had just come to the house and stayed with us or something, but he had lost everything. He was just a wonderful, wonderful person, really. Without Bob's help, he spoke perfect Spanish, and none of us spoke Spanish, he just smoothed the way for everybody. He was just a gentleman, a really fine, fine person. That was Bob Schley. George Carlson was also a wonderful man. We had a good crew. There was not a person that was bad except one. I can tell you that George Singer, I had to fire him, and the fun part about it was that he was a terrific fine artist. He did fine painting in the hotel room at the Hotel Roosevelt, a very big hotel in Mexico City. They would show his work in the windows and so on. He started making more money than he had ever made with us, thousands and thousands of dollars more. We were friends until the very end, even with these things. He made a fortune selling paintings. It was like $50,000 a painting. So he thanked me for firing him so he could get back into fine art. I told Daryl the same story. It is true, and it could happen, and he was married to a Mexican national. Give me some other names now. M.A. Jesus Martinez. H.S. We called him Chewy. Chewy owned part of Valmar, Valdez Martinez. The V.A.L. is Valdez, and M.A.R. is Martinez. They owned a company called Valmar. The first name Valdez is Gustavo Valdez, who was in politics. I believe he was the governor of one of the states, I think Durango. I'm not too sure about that, but he was in politics. He was a really wonderful person and really wealthy. When I say wealthy, I mean millions of dollars under the mattress wealthy like that. The guy was Gustavo Valdez. Chewy was his brother-in-law. That's how he got involved. When we bought Valmar and it became Gamma Productions, Chewy became in charge of production as far as the Mexican concern and any problems between the Mexicans and the Americans. We honestly never had a strike. A lot of books were written about how good it was, but it was a marvelous experience. Let's put it that way. The people were marvelous with no problems. They were nice people. If not for the government and their laws, it would have been much easier, let's put it that way. We had a place eventually getting things in Mexico. Brushes. Windsor Newton brushes, for instance. We couldn't bring that to Mexico because they made brushes down there for painting homes. A brush is a brush, but it's not a Windsor Newton. A $5 brush for painting the house. These are the problems we faced, really. M.A. You'd think there would be some art supplies down there anyway. H.S. Oh, yeah, you could get them. But where a brush might cost you $30 here in the States, a Windsor Newton, it might be there at $110. Using house paint on the brush, where you weren't using regular art paint or acrylic paint, your brush would be dead in a week. It was useless. We had to smuggle other stuff like brushes in our way. We had some good smuggling contacts at our company who took care of us. M.A. Here's another person, Ernesto Terrazas, H.S. Ernie Terrazas, he was an animator, a Disney animator. He worked with Carlos Manriquez. Carlos was in charge of ink and paint. He was with us on the Underdog series, but Ernie was let go. Carlos Manriquez was in charge of ink and paint. We had like three people working in ink and paint at the time. 
Originally, Valmar was in a three- or four-story building, but Gustavo, being an architect also, decided to build a building of our own with the money. I didn't get involved with that situation. Somehow, along the way, we ended up with a building for ourselves, all done for Gamma Productions, in a place called Tecamacalco, M.A. Daryl does show photographs of both buildings. H.S. Yeah, I can't recognize it, really. M.A. It doesn't look the same at all? H.S. Not at all. Looks like a paint shop or something. Chewy and Gustavo, they invested their own money, and I guess Peter Peach did an investment and built the company for us in Tecamacalco. It was named after the city. M.A. More names. Jaime Torres. H.S. Okay. The number one is Bud Gourley. M.A. I was going to ask about him, too. H.S. Yeah, Bud was an American living in Mexico for many, many years in the film business. Bud ran the day-to-day -day working of the studio. He ran many situations. He handled customs. He had all the contacts and spoke perfect Spanish. He would sort out things with the government. Bud was really, really important. When Bud left eventually, Jaime Torres came in. He was a friend of Bud's, and Jaime took over. Jaime lived, I believe, with an American citizen, but he lived on both sides of the border. You want names of towns or something? M.A. That's fine, yeah. H.S. Reynosa. It was right opposite. It's a border town, really. I'll try to remember some of these names. It's a long time ago. M.A. You're doing pretty well. H.S. I'm trying to think of the town, but Jaime lived on both sides, and he knew everybody in politics. The word in Spanish is called the gordita. Have you heard of that word? M.A. Yes, I have. H.S. Okay. A gordita is a bike to get across the border at certain times of the day. If you write about that, you could get put in jail for that. A lot of it was illegal so that you could get the work done. So Bud was number one. He left after he was with us for quite a few years. He left for the States and Jaime came in, and he ran the Mexican end of the studio. I ran the production end of it. In most of the books on the shows by Gama, I don't credit for anything, basically, which is okay, but they wrote stories. They were interviewed by the author, but no one interviewed me except Daryl, the first person. M.A. I did talk about you in my book. Quote, in 1964, Harvey Siegel became co-owner of Gama with Jaime Torres and was the head of Gama until it closed in 1970, unquote, which you could probably tell me if that's accurate. H.S. Yeah. M.A. I probably got most of my information from Roman Onrambula because I had a decent interview with him. H.S. I stayed on. I left in 1980. I stayed on. I got there in 59, and since I owned part of the company, I was put in charge of the production. Actually, there's a book called The Moose That Roared. There's so many things in that book that are so wrong. I'm looking at the books I've got that were written, and only one that's written that's worthwhile is Daryl's, as far as Gamma's concerned. M.A. In my book, I do have a chapter on Gamma, and I mention things with a grain of salt from The Moose That Roared, because the book starts off saying, quote, Oh yeah, they did these other cartoons like Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo that weren't very good, unquote. And I said, quote, hey, I like those cartoons. What is this? I mean, they're not the same type of cartoons as Rocky and Bullwinkle, but I still enjoyed them, unquote. H.S. Yeah, the problem is now that all the credit goes to J. Ward Group. They take credit for everything. I mean everything. We never had a chance to even defend ourselves. A lot of it was just plain lies. M.A. 
So that was the purpose of my book. You definitely need a copy of my book because you'll see what I wrote. HS, okay, great. MA. And then you can embellish upon that. You can read it and say, quote, oh, this is right, this is wrong, you need to add this, unquote. HS, most definitely. If I can't help you with the truth that's going on with the show itself, the people were wonderful. There's all these stories about Mexico, like there was always a strike because there was no toilet paper. There's stupid things like that. There was no toilet paper, so they went on strike. It's a lie. It's so stupid. Then, of course, the building was broken because of the earthquake and divided the building in half. M.A. I left stuff like that out because I felt that it sounded a little far-fetched. H.S. First of all, they were unionized, and the government would have closed us down right away. M.A. Let me ask you about a few people who weren't down there, but you worked with, like Gordon Johnson of General Mills. Did you work with him? H.S. Gordon Johnson was with Dancer Fitzgerald Sample. M.A. That's what I meant. Did you deal with him directly? H.S. Oh, yeah, a lot. We were good friends. In fact, Gordon bought my share of the show. I was very naive about money, and I still am. Gordon knew what he was doing, so he came down one day and he said, quote, Harvey, the show is going to be closing up soon, but I can buy it from you, and you want to sell it? Unquote. And I said, quote, okay, unquote. It was like $10,000 for seven years, but I wish I had kept some of it anyway. He was in charge at Dancer Fitzgerald's sample. He was big. To me, he was the top man there. M.A. Of course, I interviewed all four owners of TTV, Buck Biggers, Joe Harris, Tred Covington, and Chet Stover. I don't know if you have any memories about them. H.S. I met Tred, and I loved him. He was a wonderful man. He got me, and at the time my wife, Eileen, I think it was tickets to The Man of La Mancha. I think it was one of the great shows in the New York scene. Tread was very good and nice to work with. A lot of these people from the Gamma Group tried desperately to get work from Ward to help us out, and it was always a dead end. They don't believe it was all in L.A. We had talent, but it was not number one. We'd try, and I think the show proved it. It was weird stop action and characters shifting from scene to scene. I think considering the pressure we were under and considering what we had, the show was still going strong, and it would go strong, underdog included. We must have done something right. M.A. After Jay Ward pulled out after Hoppity Hooper, I guess you were still working on Klondike Cat? And what else was going on at Total Television? H.S. We had Tudor Total, I believe, at one point. M.A. Yeah, and the Beagles was like the last series? H.S. I think Joe and Tread could give you the exact dates of the show. Commander McBrag, I love that one. M.A. When it was just the Total Television shows for like the last year or so? H.S. I think the characters Joe created, the characters are all his. He was there from the very beginning. M.A. Yes, but what I mean was, what was the studio like in the later days? H.S. We had a going studio at the time. We had about 125 people. We did a lot of work for the U.S. government for international development, or AID. We did a lot of work on documentary films for them. I mentioned to you that we won a contest for 42,000 commercials. We were in the top 100 of 1969. You can Google all this stuff, I believe. One of the top 100 was a Trix commercial. I think it was called VOT, V-O-T, like voting. On the box was a ballot. The idea was to have the kids send in, cut the ballot out, and send it in, to have the rabbit get tricks. The story was that he never gets the tricks. Tricks are for kids. That was the idea. I think Nixon was running then. What I heard and what I remember... 
that more votes were cast for our character than for the President of the United States. M.A. That sounds about right. I do remember that. I was a kid when that came out. I was about five years old. So it could have been 1972 election, or it could have been 1968. H.S. I think it was 1969 because I got a letter from that time. M.A. Well, they might have rerun it in 1972. H.S. Yeah. I got a letter from Cy congratulating me on winning the 100 best commercials. I got the letter. I still have it. I'll send you a copy of it in the mail. I'll get your address and all. I'll send you copies of the stuff I've got here. M.A. Now, is that Cy Platts you're talking about? H.S. Yes, Cy Platts. Cy was a wonderful man. I keep saying wonderful man, but they really were great people to work with. M.A. What was Cy like? The only thing that I really know is that he was one of the characters as a platypus, and they ended up putting him in a Tennessee tuxedo. I don't know much about him beyond that. H.S. I stayed in his home in Minnesota. That's how close we were. He invited me up to General Mills. He was the head of marketing at General Mills. Heather, his wife, I met with her, and I stayed with him at his home in Minneapolis. That was for about a week in Minnesota. He was really a straight shooter and a wonderful man. They were really nice people. I couldn't say that about the ward group. M.A. I got that impression, too, about TTV. Everyone I interviewed was very nice. The thing that was really strange was that it took me a while to track them down, even like yourself. The only people that got credit were really the voice artists from Total Television. I just knew the voices, and that's it. H.S. Yeah, definitely. M.A. It says, Animation Gamma Productions. That's it. H.S. We had a hard time getting our name in the show titles. They made the titles up in L.A. and left us off the titles. Instead of saying, Harvey Siegel, head of production, you never saw that really, so all the credit went to them. Truly, the only guy I liked working with that was really tough was Sean Bowman. Sean was very particular about what he liked, and we tried to please him. It was difficult because the cameras wouldn't do what he wanted. We had an Oxford camera. Actually, we had two cameras. We had one camera, and that camera was a lemon. So when Peter built the camera, we didn't know what to do we didn't know what to look for, so you couldn't do dissolves or fade-outs or fade-ins. We eventually had to hire an engineer in Mexico to create one for us, a camera that would work. I remember Gerard writing a letter back to us, really angry, saying, quote, When I say fade to black, I mean black, unquote. He'd bang his hand down on the table and say, I mean black. We couldn't do it. That was the problem. The camera wouldn't fade to black because it was a plain old brownie camera. M.A. I just interviewed Gerard on Tuesday. He gave me a lot of information, but he never worked for Total Television, did he? H.S. No, no. M.A. He did work for Jay Ward. I just did a book on DePatty Freeling now, and I forgot that he had also worked there, so I talked to him a little bit about that. He did a couple of Dr. Seuss specials. H.S. Yeah, yeah. He is a very good director and a very good animator, but again, he was part of Ward's group, and that was putting a knife in our back. Whenever they had a chance, they would do it. That was very unfortunate because they helped us in the very beginning and really helped us not to come down there and make speeches. They sent some of their animators down, some of the top guys, a guy named Hertz, for instance. M.A. Oh, Bill Hertz? H.S. Yes. Who am I hate? Some guys I love. Hertz I hate. He did anything possible to kill us. Also, I was sitting at the table here at our house, and the book came out about our show. He took credit for opening the company and starting the company in Mexico City. He took all the credit for that, and it was one big lie, because the credit goes to Bud Gourley, Bob Schley, and myself. He never mentioned that. It was always Bill Hurts, Bill Hurts, Bill Hurts. 
He took credit for everything. M.A. I think I got the story straight in my book. H.S. It's unfortunate, really, because I could have been so helpful in the beginning. He went down to Mexico to see if he could help us out a bit, but it was any way they could kill us. So when they came down for trips, three or four of them from Ward's group, they never once asked, quote, Can we bring you something? Can we bring you paint? Can we bring you ink, brushes, camera, iodide? Special lamps that you use for cameras to get the correct Kelvin rating? Unquote. We had our own Kelvin rating, and it would be wrong. They, they're small and tiny, and they came down as tourists, and they would not get searched. We would get searched. They would come down, and they, would, and they could have said, quote, Can you use something? Can you use some scotch tape? Anything. Unquote. Never once did they help us with that. Never once. That just shows you what we were up against. It was tough the first few years with shows going. I was not happy at the beginning because we had to train people who literally knew nothing about animation. They came off the street, went to art school, and brought in trained people in the beginning. It got going and eventually became very commercial. In fact, the letter I have from Cy Platts says, quote, We'll give Harvey more work when he gets the thing going, unquote. That's how Cy felt about us. He was a wonderful man. He retired from General Mills, and then he made his living in a lean right now. I lost track. I lost track of him. M.A. I think he's gone too, but I don't know. H.S. He was a really nice person and professional. He was very happy with the shows. M.A. You were talking about Jay Ward and the whole purpose of why Total Television started was that General Mills and Dancer Fitzgerald's sample were having troubles with Jay Ward. They said, quote, what is all this? We want a kid's show, not stuff with spies, espionage, and stuff like that. We want a simple kid's show, unquote. And that's why they created Total Television in order to make simpler shows. H.S. That's right. M.A. That was always their plan. For a while, it kind of worked that they had them both going out of Hollywood and New York. H.S. Absolutely. If you're familiar with Tiffany Ward and so on, and he asked me to show her the first pilot show, I think it was a three-and-a-half-minute, four-minute pilot, the shows themselves, they would have been so much easier to deal with or to accomplish our goal if we helped one another. They just didn't. If you look at the pilot, have you seen the pilot? M.A. I've seen frames from it, but I haven't seen the actual film. H.S. Well, try to get a hold of that. That's what we bid on, and that's what we were doing. And they complain, quote, No, no, we want more animation, and more this, and more that, unquote. Well, that's not what we bid on. And also, General Mills and P.A.T., he got a very great, primitive-looking show. It was very, very simple, and that's what he was turning out. But he wanted more and more and more, and better, better, better work. That's not what I signed on to do. If you look at the first show with Cloyd and Gindy, the Moon Men, with the pilot of going to the moon, you look, that's what we bid on. It was paper cutouts, basically. So when they ordered more and more and more, we didn't have anybody to do that more and more and more. That's where we didn't fail. Personally, as I said, we gave them what they wanted. I said that we didn't have the talent to do that, and there were major problems. I do believe with Underdog we did much better. M.A. Well, yeah, I always say that the best series was Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo for Total Television, and where you did best for Jay Ward was probably Hoppity Hooper, even though nobody remembers it. H.S. That was a great show, by the way. M.A. I love Hoppity Hooper. I wish they would put out a proper release of it on home video. H.S. I don't know why they held it up. I have no idea, really. M.A. I don't either. I've asked about it. I used to go to the Dudley Do-Rod Emporium in L.A. and ask, quote, What happened to Hoppity Hooper? Unquote. They'd say, quote, Oh, Classic Media owns it. Unquote. 
Then I would call the people at Classic Media, and they'd say, quote, Oh, Jay Ward owns it, unquote. They didn't know. HS, very strange. It was a funny show. Jay Ward's stuff, let's put it this way, you could have had, in my opinion, a blank screen and just have the characters speaking. You would really have had a show. It was so funny, really. M.A., so the later total television show I mentioned, I don't know if you remember it, was The Beagles. It was about two dogs, and they went around and they sang songs and things like that. Do you remember anything about it? H.S., I really don't remember The Beagles at all. M.A., yeah, it wasn't a big success, but Gamma did animate it. Once you see my book, you might remember it from pictures or something. It's kind of one of those weird shows also that is now kind of lost. H.S. It sounds familiar, yet it doesn't sound familiar. M.A. There were two dogs. One was tall and played a guitar, and one was short and played a stand-up bass. H.S. I can't remember that at all. I remember Tennessee Tuxedo because that was more of an educational show. M.A. Tennessee was on for three years, and Underdog was on for three years. The Beagles was only for a year, so that might be why. H.S. Yeah. I remember Joe Menfield, who is our background man, did a lot of the backgrounds on the Tennessee Tuxedo shows. I'm thinking right now, I remember the pistons on the automobile going up and down. Joe figured out how to show that on a black and white background, and it worked out really, really nicely. He's a terrific background artist. Joe Menfield. He passed away also. M.A. One person I didn't get a chance to interview, and you might know him, and he did storyboards, Jerry Ray. H.S. Jerry was in Mexico when I got down there. He was already in Mexico working for a company called Tompkins. I forgot his first name, but Tompkins had an animation studio. Jerry really worked hard for Tompkins. He never worked for Gama. He worked through Ward, I believe. M.A. I have him at TV spots. I think Joe Harris got Jerry to do storyboards sometimes, and those were sent down to Gama. I think that's where it was. H.S. Possibly, yeah. I don't believe that Gama hired him. At least he wasn't on my payroll. M.A. In the back of my book, I have a who's who of total television. You can go through it and see if I got everybody. H.S. Why don't I do that? I can go through the names. I'm sure Sammy Temerg worked on this on the Underdog series, I believe. M.A. Here's a storyboard artist also, Gary Mooney. He worked with Joe Harris. H.S. Yeah, yeah, Joe Harris, yes. M.A. Joe mentioned that he went down to see you guys once during, it was like 1965 or something. He said that it was his one visit to Mexico. He thought everything ran pretty smoothly. H.S. It was a different category. They were very helpful, TTV. Hopefully, they liked what we did. People still know Underdog. M.A. In the interviews I did, nobody on the Total Television side ever said any bad words about Gamma. They didn't really work when it was Valmar, if there were problems back then. But by the time Total Television came in, everything was pretty much established. They thought it worked pretty well. The only thing that was a shock to them initially was that General Mills said that they had to use Gamma. They weren't sure, but General Mills said that that was part of the deal. And so they said, okay, and that was it. H.S. Yeah, yeah. Well... They were with us for quite a while after that. M.A. Back then, Terry Tunes was still there in New York, and Paramount was still in New York. They thought that this would be done in New York. H.S. I guess we were cheaper. I don't know the financial part of the deal, or of how much it costs and so on, but the cost I know in Mexico was much cheaper than in the States. That's why a lot of work was done down in Mexico. M.A. Right. So I've heard that Gamma kind of closed up or at least stopped doing the series animation in 1967. Is that correct? H.S. I have to get my papers because they changed the name from Gamma. They changed it to Animation International. 
M.A. This is the story I know, and you can correct me, is that you stopped doing series animation in 1967, you closed the doors to Gamma and changed the name in 1970. H.S. What I'm going to do, I'm going to send you some paperwork that says when we closed and the exact dates. It's some Mexican credentials proving that I did that. I have a drawer full of things here, and I'll see what I've got. I've got paperwork with exactly the date that we closed our doors. I've got it all, so let me write it all down. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Harvey Siegel, for being my special guest. Be sure to pick up the TTV scrapbook by Mark Arnold and Victoria Biggers today from Bear Manor Media, Amazon, or BarnesandNoble.com. Episode number 132 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of the characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.